for folks who are trying to get on that boat or that plane, being alive is the mission. How do I get out of here so I can be alive so that I am not, right? And then also being in a boat waiting at sea, just trying, hoping to be rescued. Again, in that moment, being alive and surviving is the only focus. Never mind the quality of life that's going to come after. Welcome to Discover More Podcast, a community for seekers of curiosity and mental health insights. I am your host, Benoit Kim, a trilingual Korean-American veteran and former policymaker. I became a clinician after witnessing the non-negotiable of mental health and nuanced perspectives in our everyday life. I intend to connect and dissect the intricacies of mental health by talking to the most fascinating humans I can possibly find. Congratulations on choosing curiosity over complacency. Let's get this started. This week's guest is Dr. Trang Huang. Dr. Huang is a professor at the University of Southern California School of Social Work, former division director at SSG Alliance, and received her graduate and doctorate degrees at UCLA. This is a very, very special episode because Dr. Huang does not do media appearances due to her high emphasis on privacy. So this may be the very first and the last time you're here from her directly, outside of the very expensive USC education, of course. So take advantage of this free once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Wow, that's sounding like an infomercial, but Dr. Huang has seven publications under her name and is the co-chair of the AAPI Equity Alliance Mental Health Subcommittee and served on numerous regional and national associations, such as the UCLA Conflict Resolutions and Mediation Team and Council on Social Work Education. Last year, Dr. Huang taught me the rigor and nuances within scientific research, and is an embodiment of empowerment and advocacy for AAPI communities. Unknown to most, Dr. Huang directly experienced the horrific reality of wars in southern Vietnam and the subsequent refugee experience when she was young. It is Dr. Huang's lifelong mission to help close the mental health gap in AAPI communities and I am beyond excited to have a fellow AAPI mental health advocate on the show. Dr. Huang, welcome to the show. Thank you, Manoa. Thank you so much for letting me join you in this discussion. This is quite an honor. And um, so I'm just going to follow your lead and trust you to take us through this discussion and discover. Thank you very much. And the honor is all mine as well. So, Dr. Huang, I feel like it's not every day that we get to have someone with a high caliber who have gone through like a refugee or similarly intensive experiences. And if you look at the media, right, refugees coming over, whether it's over a boat or just seeking safety and shelter, is often portrayed through a very controversial and negative light by mainstream media. But I think media often forgets the incredible resilience and strength that underlies each refugee experience. So could we start there? Uh, how did life and reality seem to you throughout that, what I could assume as very, very intensive and very uniquely difficult journey? I think as a refugee, in that moment, one doesn't think about how does this look, or one doesn't think about resilience. One thinks about how do I stay safe and make sure my child feels safe? Um, so the resilience is about surviving that moment and then the next moment. So for example, 
It's getting onto a safety vessel of some kind, right? And then surviving those days of being at sea when there's limited water and food, and you never know how long you're going to be. So whatever we have in terms of, we used to pack, for us, we packed um, a bag of noodles. This is why um, ramen noodle has such a, has such a, a tug for us of Vietnamese refugees and my family in specific is because it, it, it's easy to pack and you just need water. And so if we have 10 bags, we don't know how many days that's going to last us. And we don't know if it's going to be five days or 10 days. And I remember, you know, to survive that day, it's the, it's surviving day by day, right? I remember waking up every morning, I was 11 and I would just run up to the, the what do you call it? The top? the deck. Mm -hmm. And I look out and I think, I'm going to see where we're going. And every morning I get up there and it's the same horizon <laughs> and we're still in the middle of nowhere and it's all water. And, and it's that moment of, oh, we're still uncertain. Our lives are still here in this bobbing along in, in the middle of nowhere and getting through those days and and then knowing that no matter what comes, we're just going to deal with it. So we'll stretch the noodle or the rice bag as long as we can. And then we'll just take each day's horizon, hoping that at the end of the day, we may see the land, right? So for refugees, it's, it's that kind of getting through. It's the survival of getting through each day at a time. And then once we arrive, wherever it is we arrive, we again just get through what does it take to do the next thing, to get a driver license, to learn the language or to get a job or to... So it is resilience from the outside. Again, it's sensational from the outside as we look into these people's experience. It's also resilience as we look from the outside. We say, wow, there's so much resilience. I think from the inside out, it's I'm getting through the day. Later on, as we settled, the question is, now, can we reflect on that survival and can we learn from that and take it into the next phase of our, of our life pattern, right? And whether we um, think about quality of life, we think about what our experience has taught us so that we can be better human beings, so that we can then turn around and be the refugee, the Vietnamese refugee Americans that support the Afghani family. 30 or 40 years later. So the resilience is when over time we have the benefit of time, right? So that we can look back and we can support others and we can remember what it felt like in those moments so that we can use that compassion for the next group of people, for our common humanity of suffering. Like we know what it felt like to suffer and we know that is very similar to our experience. And that, I think, is more resilience. Yeah, it's almost like peering into the collective suffering of humanity through our own suffering, which creates this lens of empathy and relatability to other people who you, you may not ever spoke to, you may not understand, who may look different from you. But through the lens of suffering, you're like, ah, suffering is ubiquitous across this container of humanity, what we call it. Um, and I want to zoom in on what you said in terms of 
reflection, right? I'm reading this book called The Road Less Traveled. It's written by a very prolific um, psychiatrist. It's a timeless classic. And the author talks about the importance for us to refine our maps, right? Um, it's the map that we view and navigate this complexity of life through. But a lot of people, unfortunately, do not retweak or refine their map. Once they create a map that's functional, they're like, oh, I'm good. And they resist and they block out new information and new changes. But life is constantly changing, right? Like change is the only constant. And you have to, and then the author as a psychiatrist, and a very prominent psychiatrist, he talks about, we must update our map as life and information and reality updates accordingly. So as a psychotherapist and a doctor yourself, Dr. Huang, uh, what do you think about the importance of reflections? And why is it important for us to reflect upon uh, what we go through so that we can work more equipped and better equipped in the future for whatever challenges life would present us with? We do reflect. People do reflect, but it's the level of how long the reflection is and how, and how conscious it is. Because I think as hum, uh, part of our human nature, we have moments, flashes, if you will, right? Of uh, what I call flashes of brilliance or flashes of moments of insight. And, and that's as therapists, we bank on that. We must bank on that. Otherwise, change is not going to happen. But, and it's our job as therapists to, to literally find those moments for our clients and say, wait, 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 let's stay right here <laughs> where you have this moment of reflection, where you have this moment of insight and let's dissect this insight and for you to think about what it means for you. So I think we shouldn't shortchange people and say people don't reflect. They do. It's that one moment where they're sitting on the toilet or they're in the shower or they just lay down. But the difference is the denial of that moment of reflection. So it's so painful that sometimes people just lay, they, they lay down, they put their head on their pillow, and then they start the reflection of, wow, today was a hard day, right? That moment, then the thought comes in. And what do people do? It's a hard day. Forget it. I don't want to think about it. Let me scroll on my Instagram because it's an escape from that moment of it was a hard day. And same thing with the shower. So I'll turn on the music in the shower instead so that I don't have to think about whatever that my mind is going to remind me. Um, and so remember, reflection is about, and, and this comes back to memory and our cognitive process, right? It, our thought is constantly moving. We know that, that the brain synapses are going. It's what our brain does with these these different thoughts that come in. And it's our connection to memory and association that is part of that reflection. Right now, I'm sitting with you and I see your lovely face. And um, it's this moment of seeing you as an Asian American. Then it connects to my association of, oh, AAPIs, this is very important, and advocacy. You see? So there's always these connection our brain does within our own life experiences. And that's the reflection. It is. It's all these constant thoughts that is associated with memories, with other experiences. So, so our people, we all have this capacity for reflection. It's just that what do we decide to do with that moment? We escape from it. We avoid it. We diffuse it with something else. And then in the therapeutic process, we make people sit with us for 50 minutes 
and undivided attention. And anytime the attention starts to get wander off, we pull them back. We go, wait a minute, come back to the room with me. Stay here in this moment of reflection. And I think that's what reflection is. So I'm hopeful because it means that people do reflect on their lives every day in different moments. And it's just a matter of, and that's what mindful living is. It's whatever, if we could just catch these moments of ourselves and say, hey, let me pause here for a minute and notice that I'm joyful right now. And hey, let me sit here and say, wow, I feel really sad and grief and loss and miss my mom. And it's okay. So I think our work as therapists is to teach people the mindfulness. We talk about mindful living, right? So to teach people to notice these moments, to be okay with it, whether it's painful or joyful, and to teach people to take it as it is. I want to focus on what you said, denial of the moment, right? Because, so how can you distinguish for, for those who, because sometimes escapism is needed, right? When the world is really tough, reality slamming you left and right, and we're not saying escape from the reality, but sometimes it, it could be serving. At the same time, how would you teach people or, or tell people, how can we distinguish that, oh, am I escaping from the reality or am I just momentarily shutting my brain off? How would you be able to distinguish the difference? We have so much jargon, right? We call it denial, resistance. So as trained professionals, we oftentimes get caught up in that. Well, sure, we have these big words to describe a very complex phenomenon. But I think on the day-to-day, it comes back down to self-compassion. So to be fair, I'm going to state my bias. I, I'm on, a, on this path of mindful self-compassion in the last four or five years. So um, introduced to the work of Kristen Neff and, and um, Chris Germer. So as a therapist, I learn about compassion, right? I learn about how we as therapists feel compassion for our clients and we try to portray that. And that compassion is the, uh, the gift of humanity because I can't give you housing, but I can give you my compassion in being with you and recognize your suffering. So we're so good at learning that, but we forget that we can give as much as we want of compassion, but people need to learn their own self-compassion. They need to learn to give themselves that. So it's similar to sort of the Christian and the Bible notion of teach people to fish instead of giving them the fish, right? So that's great. That's nice from a therapeutic thing about, oh, yes, let's teach people to have insight. But I think the self-compassion is the second level of insight. So I think in therapeutic work, there's two pieces. There's a cognitive piece, teaching people insight which we're very good at with all of our cognitive behavioral therapy stuff. But I think the second piece of it is teaching people to give self-compassion. People are capable of compassion. Everybody's capable of compassion because people who are really mean and angry and whoever that is in your life that you experience as being mean and angry, right? But if they see some suffering somewhere that tugs at their, their heart, they will feel the self, the, the compassion, right? So it's our job to pull out that compassion and say, you're capable of that. And now, how about we teach you to give that to yourself? The roundabout way to answer your question is the self-compassion allow people to sit in that moment of pain. I feel pain right now and I feel 
sorry for myself. You know how many people talk about, "Hey, let me wallow. I'm just wallowing in my loss and grief right now. Don't tell me to feel better, right?" And, and that's it.、Yeah. It's that moment where somebody is saying to you, "I feel bad, and let me feel bad right now. Don't make me not feel bad." And that is the self compassion is soothing and saying, "Hey, I'm so sorry. I feel bad for myself." And we as therapists need to learn to sit with that. Because we're too easy to fix people, we want people to feel better quickly, and so we forget. We sometimes bypass that moment of allowing people to really feel angry and hurt and and lost and sad and grief. Again, it's like reflection. Remember, we so reflection is sort of the cognitive piece, right? This is the affective piece. Remember, people are only capable of small spurts of that. So start small, even if it's just. A quick five breaths of feeling sad. So what we do is we teach people to use that breath and say, "Okay, when you feel something, just do the three deep breaths and stay with that and see what it goes." And then if people want to escape it, okay, fine. <laughs> three breaths is all you can handle. And then the three breaths become the five. It becomes five minutes. And in our in when people who do meditation or mindfulness work. They know that you sit with your discomfort, right? And so, you teach people to sit with the pain, one breath at a time. So we say, let's breathe through this, breathe through the loss, breathe through the pain. Reminds me of like the ethos from James Clear's book Atomic Habits. Like the whole book is about make one percent, three percent incremental gains, and it's all about progression, not perfection. I think the same philosophy applies here, where you don't have to aim for feeling the best, feeling the highs and peaches and rainbows when you're feeling low. It's like no, no, no. Do one percent of breath work. Do one percent of maybe sulking less, or maybe even being more sulking in that moment if you're not used to being in the feelings or in your body. Right, the somatic we talk about. I want to be more concrete for people because I think this is a really, really important topic. So in this world where forgiveness and self-compassions are not rewarded, right? It's about oh, don't think about it. Just move on. Just think you're through it. But there's a saying that you can't think through overthinking, right? So like, how do you teach someone who don't have the professional training that we do, or who don't have any mindfulness practices that we do, and who want to be more self-compassionate, who want to extend more grace to themselves? How would you show someone how to do it? Maybe on an incremental level. Okay, that's a big one, Benoit. <laughs> I think on the day to day, first, again, it's because it start with noticing right here, right now. What do I? What do I feel? Am I angry? Am I hurt? Am I sad? So let's say if I work with a child, right? It's about teaching the child to have a word, to have a name, to whatever they experience, and it, it has to be in their vocabulary. So this is where you know, again, cultural competence, right? Different languages that we work with. We don't work in English all the time. I work in Vietnamese half the time. So in Vietnamese or in your own language, what is it that's happening right now? And so this is where that mind-body connection comes in too. Sometimes, and I work with. Um, say folks who are very anxious, they can't tell you the feeling, but they can say, "I can't breathe," or 
I have this block or I have this tension on my shoulder. Okay, so let's stay there for a minute. For a minute, there's that tension. Your poor body is hurting. Give it some soothing support. So we start with people naming what it is that they experience. I think naming the experience is a step towards coping with the experience. So we name what we what we what's going on for us. Don't even call it feelings because people shy away from feeling. I don't have words for feelings. Just <laughs> name what it is that you're experiencing: the pain, the whatever it is in your body or in your head or in your heart. Then from there. Then we learn to sit with that and say, "How do I soothe my shoulder?" I don't net. I don't have access to a massage right now, but how can I soothe my shoulder right now? I can at least unwind my shoulder. So then we teach people the next step, and this is where it's tailored. This is where the difficulty is. So you you ask questions about. Let's make it concrete. The the beauty is in the detail. It's you, Benoit. And you say to me, "I have neck pain." Then you and I have to figure out what soothes the neck pain. For me, it's not the same as you. So you have to tell. You have to figure out what do you want to do with that neck pain. And if you're ready to let go of that neck pain, and that brings us to stage of change, right? And this is one of the hardest thing I think for therapists to manage is. For therapists to sit with the discomfort of the client, not ready to make the change at the level where the therapist wants. Yeah, it's like the uh, yeah because sometimes you have to let the clients go through the breakthrough and let them yeah follow their own timelines, right? Yeah, and and so to come back to the concrete, so I know you're like, where where are you going with the stage of change? Um, to come back to your concrete question again, if it's my cousin, right? My cousin has a lot of tension in the neck, but he's not wanting to deal with that because he doesn't want to connect that tension to relationship or whatever it is. So, if I'm with my cousin, I can only help him notice that there's tension and figure out what、well, does he want to feel less tension. And if he says, "Yeah, okay, how do I fix my ten- my t- my shoulders?" Then we can begin to start with the external. So sometimes our therapeutic work we start from the outside in. A lot of people make the mistake of coming from the inside out, and in order to start from the inside out, you make people go inside and cut deep right away. It's too early. So for us,、mm-hmm. we start from the outside in. My cousin can figure out some fixes for the shoulders to start with, so that he goes, "Oh, it's a little bit better." Okay, so it's external, and then he's feeling a little bit better, and then we can then go to the next step of why do you think you have tension? So remember, first we na- name the experience, we figure out if we want to do something about the experience, and if we do, then we begin to connect the cause of the experience, and also what are some steps to reduce the discomfort. And then we take the next step, which is: Do we want to do a little bit more fixing of the experience? Because sometimes it isn't about fixing the experience, right? Yeah, I feel like that's that's really important. Yeah, sometimes you can't change their circumstances. Yeah, yeah. 
And then sometimes it's about sitting with them. Folks who are in incarcerated. Hey, I'm stuck in here. It sucks. So we can't fix it. But we have to learn to sit with, this is where I am. And one of the work that I came across again recently with is Ram Dass' book on Still Here. So Ram Dass wrote, wrote a lot about mindfulness early on and um, wrote about being here, right? Teaching us to be in the moment. So the book that I read in January was about um, um, his disability. So he, he had a severe life um, illness and um, is very incapacitated really reduced uh, capacity in terms of mobility, in terms of just severe disability. And and it's all about being in the body, in his body, with all of these limitations. And and really talk about being stuck, right? Um, and I think in a mental capacity, in a mental health way, it's similar. That so many times we feel so stuck emotionally and mentally similar to this physical stuckness and incapacitation. And so it really helped me in terms of perspective and learning, thinking, to think about what it feels like to be sitting here. And that comes with people with no resources, right? People with no housing, no, re no finances, not having any family, not having any relationships, being incarcerated. I mean, name any of our population that we work with. There's that stuckness. Yeah, I think that's a very important thing to talk about. And I sense a very strong theme of like, not just seeking discomfort, but like just like the inheritance nature of discomfort that's embedded in life, right? Especially with different varying range of um, oppressions, privileges, and everything in between. I have a personal curiosity. And if it doesn't land anywhere, I'll take full ownership of that. So one of my favorite philosophers, his name is Alan Watts. He's a British philosopher. And he has a quote. He talks about everyone likes to overcomplicate everything. But life is simple. Being alive is the point. Right? And I think there's a lot in that quote. And it's very, very worth thinking twice about. But so in terms of being alive and being stuck, whether it's in a mental capacity or physical capacity, those are all part of the packages that comes with life to many individuals. But what does that quote mean to you, if any? Like, what does that mean? Just the whole point of life might just be being alive. We don't have to do all these things, but just being here in this space is what matters. It's a really good question. And it really, again, challenges me to think about and use the cultural humility, right? To, to come at it from a humble perspective of, being alive means to me is different than you and different than somebody who is feeling suicidal right now. And the judgment that comes with that. So the statement of being alive is what matters. So, okay. So for example, so back to my refugee example, right? So for folks who are trying to get on that boat or that plane, being alive is that is the mission. How do I get out of here so I can be alive so that I am not, right? Um, and then also being in a boat, waiting at sea, just trying, hoping to be rescued. Again, in that moment, being alive and surviving is the only focus. Never mind the quality of life that's going to come after. Never mind that 
I didn't realize yet you're going to go from the boat in the middle of the sea to a refugee camp of 130,000 people crammed in tents or tiny houses or whatever, however the refugee camp looks like, right? And then or going to a country and then having no re- no family because I'm 16-year-old, an unaccompanied minor sent on this boat by my parents for, quote, a better life. And then I'm going to arrive with nobody who cares about me in any way, shape, or form. So being alive changes in our moments of time, even individually for you and for me, right? That the importance of being alive or what does, or what does being alive look like? It changes from the moment I was at sea to the moment I'm in a refugee camp to now. Like right now, being alive is great. I want to be alive. I have a great life. I'm privileged. All right. But if I am severely abused and locked up and a victim of trafficking, I don't know if I still feel the same way. And I think that being alive is defined differently in that moment of in time. As a challenge to us as therapists, and I say this in training, right? We have no judgment about what the person's feeling about ending their life is. Because we, from our vantage point, can't say, I'm glad to be alive. You should be glad to be alive. And we should try and protect you and make sure you're alive, right? Because the person's definition of life in that moment in their time is so extreme and so desperate that not being alive is probably a better option for them in that moment. So it's a tricky one because it changes every moment in our life. Because even right now, I just told you, yes, I want to be alive. It's great. But if something drastically happens in my life where my situation changes, I don't know if I could answer you in the same way. It's really important for us as therapists, if you will, to remember that the notion of being alive changes for people and that it also is different at two different vantage points from the outside in as a therapist and the inside of that person who's sitting with us. Yeah. Is it worth it? The the Vietnamese has a a great saying, which I love. Do you live to eat or do you eat to live? And I think it really helps me think about hmm, what does it really mean? What do, what do I want my life to really look like? I think the way I interpreted Ellen Watts' quote is, he's, I think the world and the society at large put too much disproportional emphasis on, you have to be ambitious, you have to do all these things, all these accolades, but at the same time, life itself just means staying alive or being alive. But of course, that also has to be and must be contextualized to every single person. So speaking of contextualizations and definition, how would you define what social work is? Because you're a psychotherapist, but your doctorate and your professional trait is a social work. The licensed clinical social workers, licensed clinicians provide very similar services as family therapists or psychologists and so on. So how would you, Dr. Huang, define what social work is? I hope faculty from USC and other schools <laughs> don't yell at me <laughs> and say, wait a minute, what kind of faculty are you when you're defining it so narrowly or so weirdly? So remember, we as a profession have always sort of prided ourselves on being very broad. So we always think of social work 
as not just sitting on the couch with someone, right? We're definitely, we're not only a therapist as, a, as all the training programs always teach us to think policy, research, connection to community and organizing in the community, right? Advocacy. So the advantage of having a broad defi definition gives you or I, the individual, the capacity to say, as a social worker, I'm going to pick my arena and I'm going to push for policy. So I'm going to be a policymaker in my, as a social worker, in my role, and that will be my arena. Another person can say, I want to make changes at the individual and family levels. So I'm going to work primarily in the school system and with families and children. And so I'm a therapist as a social worker. So the advantage is that we have wide variety of roles that we can be and can play. The trick to that is we become then the generalists. And there's always that debate in the school about do we teach people to be generalists or do we teach people to specialize? And um, so ultimately we go through training to learn to be a generalist, to learn to know that we as social workers can function if you will, can work from a very individual level as a therapist to a higher level as a policymaker, um, politician, right? Um, researcher, community advocacy. You could write social work. Brene Brown has so much um, impact, right? Or even TED Talks and podcasts like you. Look at how much you are using your social work training to influence the world in so many different ways. So the world is our oyster. We, With our training as a generalist, we can jump off to any of the arena. Now, the trick though is whatever we choose, we it's ethical for us to be very trained in that specialty. If I choose to be a therapist, I can't just stop and say, after two years training, I now can be a good therapist. We have to do constant, this is why we have to do constant continuing education and also evidence-based practice and certification, right? Because it would not be ethical for us to do that. Same thing with research. We have to really get more. So so a social worker, we can function in different arena, but we also have to continue to learn in different arena. And again, it would be very unethical if we don't continue to develop our professional capacity in whatever role. So if I choose to be a politician, that's fine, but I really also have to think about um, diversity and inclusion and how my role as a politician, am I advocating for communities uh, that are under-resourced, under right? Or underprivileged. It's that constant learning, I think, is what really helps us as a social worker to be proficient at what we do. So to define social work as a social worker, we can de be defined broadly, but to be an ethical social worker in whatever specialization we are, we have to be competent and train and um, develop in that area. I think uh, that response is very much needed because as we we're chatting offline before we start recording, is that a lot of movies and Hollywood and mainstream media tend to portray social work in a very narrow and very skewed lens of, oh, they work with uh, kids or they take their kids away from naughty parents or they do this or that. 
But if you ask anyone, oh, what do you do as a social worker? A lot of people would say, oh, thank you for what you do. You're doing amazing work. But they don't really know what that amazing work entails. So I think it's really important to say that. But I love social work as a field uh, because I chose this over clinical psychology very intentionally because where else in other profession can you learn about philosophy, neurobiology, theory, policy, right? It's so encompassing and it's a whole system approach that I think is really needed to create any sustainable systematic changes because it's so complex. So social work is very big on the lens of bio, psycho, social, and spiritual. I think biology, psychology, and environment, which is like social aspects, they make sense to a lot of people. They're like, oh, of course, yeah, biology, that's genetics. Psychology, that's the mental. We are the byproduct of our environment. I think those things make sense to most. But why is spiritual lens? Why is the concept of spirituality also equally important to social workers and to a lot of helping professions, whether you're psychiatrist, psychologist, and so on? Why, why is spiritually important? I think because, as we know from our learning about human development, right, that spirituality and moral development is part and parcel of our development, that ultimately we grow up questioning, why am I here? What, is there something bigger? Uh, am I part of a larger community? Am I larger? Uh, am I part of a larger universe? And in what way does that get played out? So even if someone isn't introduced to religion per se, they they are they grapple with spiritual questions uh, as as part of a human development. For us to not include spirituality as one lens to conceptualize the problems or conceptualize the solutions for individuals and families or systems, that's leaving out a big chunk of um, possibilities. So I think that we as human beings have a need to connect. We know that, right? We have a need to attach and connect and bond and spiritual. And we also have a need to be a part of something larger than ourselves. Um, and whatever format that takes place is is um, is important for the social worker to to frame it to help the, the to help remember that the individual is part of a larger system and it's not just a society as a system it's a spiritual system that the individual is always trying to connect to also um so whatever name the religion or even if i say i'm an atheist and i have no god but i do have a part of me that looks for meaning about what it means to be alive, what it means when I'm no longer alive. Is there consciousness? I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm a materialist and I believe that I don't have consciousness, but it, but it doesn't matter. I'm grappling with those questions. And what does that mean to me when I think about my death or I, when I think about my disability or when I think about my lot in life and my suffering? So that colors, that's the fourth piece that colors how we see our existence, how our situations. So I think that we have to incorporate that. And not to mention all the religious and all the spiritual conflict we have, right, in the world. And how can we not recognize if um, we work with people or with groups of people and communities from certain um, faith or certain belief, how can we not 
How can we not recognize that and, and the impact it has on the community or on the individual? So I had a conversation with a friend recently, and we were talking about like how rare original thoughts are. If you think about the concept of original thoughts, it's really rare. Like a lot of things we talk about, right? Even if we don't go through intentional conversations or planning with someone else, I'm sure another podcast has similar conversations that we're having now, probably years ago or maybe in the future. Likewise, a lot of people might post similar content on social media or whatever platforms without collaborating, but they provide similar insights or content. That's why I subscribe to philosophy of oneness, because I think, I think consciousness is collective. That's why original thoughts are rare. It just gets manifested differently by different times, different context, different culture. So how would you, Dr. Huang, define and how, how do you view the concept of spirituality? Well, I think it's really beautiful, actually, to have the diversity. So, and, and when you talk about the original thought, see, I'm not at all preoccupied with whether something is original. And so this is why, you know, like, oh, <laughs> I'm stealing people's thoughts. <laughs> Um, because for me, the, the originality isn't so much the thought itself. The originality is again, it's every moment. So in the, in this moment right now between us, there's originality because this particular thought or discussion about is there consciousness? Is there oneness? Are we part of something big? Whatever we're deciding between you and I, there's originality between you. It has meaning for you and it has meaning for me. And it has meaning for the third person, whoever happens to be listening to our discussion later on. And if it resonates with them, that becomes the original thought. That becomes our original thought that is shared with this third person and it resonates for them and it, it shapes their thinking in some ways. And that's the beauty of it. And that's why we interact, right? That's why we have conversation because we're trying to influence each other and other people in that moment of their life. So somebody who's listening to us in July and then hopefully years from now, somebody's going to listen to us in 2024. And if it resonates with them, how beautiful. You and I, by our effort, we have done something good. We've given somebody an original reflection or insight that's going to be helpful to their life in some small, minuscule way. And for me, that's enough. That's beautiful. That's already my purpose in life. So very humble. I'm, in that sense, I'm very humble. It's like every interaction, if I've made an impact in some small way in your life, and my life, anybody else's life, it's good enough for me. Because our lives are a string of these moments. We can't hope for anything further. Again, it's back to your Watson, right? Which is, don't make it so complicated. Yes, there are complicated thoughts and we need complicated research. But ultimately, it's, these, it's the individual impact all the time. Because as universal as the world is and as big as it is, we only experience that big, vast university within ourselves. So in that sense, the universe is so vast, but in other sense, it's so big because it's in us. We, each of us, experience our experience, right? 
and and it and it becomes humongous for us. If you're suffering, then the whole world is humongous and and really big and scary. I do vipassana meditation, and it comes back to the concept of impertinent <laughs> impermanence and um, equanimity. Right? It's the really two basic concepts of meditation, and it's because the moment change. So therefore, the thought from two minutes ago is no longer. And this thought that we have right now is already in the new moment. And it's already a new thought that's being shifted in your brain differently than in my brain. Whatever religion, whatever faith, whatever belief and values people have, it's because it's coming from their oyster shell that they are experiencing the world. From that vantage point, it's theirs and theirs alone. And who am I to say it's good or bad? Now, if they go and shoot people, then, then that becomes, wait a minute. And it, it, and therefore we can pass judgment because the experience is no longer just them, right? It's the experience, their experience now is impacting other people's experiences. And that's not acceptable. Yeah, that's when the individual experience violates mm -hmm. the collective yeah. harmony, right? The equanimity, this peace that we all strive to achieve. Right. And and that's um, when we need to have so social control and social sanction because, yeah, because we value the individual and we value the values or the beliefs or feelings you have, but that doesn't mean that it can hurt others. So I want to share another quote with you uh, on this train. And to see what your thoughts on this quote, you talked about moment to moment changes and this original moment shifts based on now, present, future, right? Because life is very nonlinear that way. Uh, one of my favorite quotes by Dr. Jordan B. Peterson, a very famous clinical psychologist, he talks about is life is comprised of what repeats. So get those repeated things right. And I think that quote embodies the moments that we're speaking about or our ability to focus on mundane tasks, to do the small things right, because that small things will over time compound into something big that could be beautiful or detrimental. Uh, do you have any thoughts on why is it important to get the repeated things right, to live moment by moment, um, because life is what repeats? It is really repeat. People forget how automatically repeating they are. Six o'clock, alarm goes, wake up, open eyes, get out of bed, go make coffee, right? So it's these repeats every week, every day. Sometimes it helps to bring people back to the mundane because then it reminds people that no matter how overwhelming feelings you have, you're still doing the mundane. You still wake up in the morning, sad or happy. You still like, wake up and open your eyes and go, here I am. So sometimes it's bringing people back to these, these small moments of their lives is a way to ground people. So I think of it as grounding. So, you know, in therapy, we have the grounding technique. We teach people, look around the room. What do you see? What do you hear? Because it's a way to bring people back to the moment, right? The mindfulness moment. And so same thing with the mundane, uh, the mundane, the routine, the repeat of everyday repeat. And so when we work with grief, sometimes it's give, it's 
the structure gives people a way to move through the grief. We call it we call it moving through the grief, not you know over or get over get over. I hate that term. Get over it, right? It, it's really life is always about moving through something, what, whether it's feelings or situation. You're just plodding through despite whatever comes around you. So um, years ago, I read the book called um, Chop Wood, Carry Water. but And there's lots of other iterations since then. But it really it is about the laundry. I got to do the laundry. I got to do the dishes. I have to make my food, whatever the food is, or buy my food or whatever, however way I get my food. Um, and it's reminding people, you have certain things you do for yourself to live. You drink water, you eat food, you do things. And if you could just do one thing and in that moment, just focusing that moment. And over time, people begin to find comfort in those activities. So first we teach people, well, let's just keep the structure going. So um, a while ago, I worked with somebody who just lost their mother during the pandemic. and and the one thing she said was really helpful was I said, well, what's the one routine that you normally do that, that is most familiar to you? And she said, my mom and I always wake up and have coffee. I said, okay, so can you do that every day? Just keep that one thing every day. Just have your coffee. And if you want, you can have two cups. You can just leave a cup for your mom if you like, because again, that's your routine. And she said that was the most helpful thing to get her out of bed, to get her up in the morning, is I'm going to get up and do my thing. And it's the routine. So we teach people to do the, the most fundamental routine that they are okay with. And then we teach them to be in that moment of that routine and to be okay with themselves in that moment. So Rumi there's this nice little quote from Rumi, and later on I want to end with the, the poem from Rumi, the Persian um, philosopher. Close your eyes, fall in love, and stay there. So it's teaching people to be here, to just stay here in a moment. And if you want to fall in love with yourself, great. <laughs> if not, that's okay too. But it's about teaching people to come back to something they do, something they do for themselves, something they do that they can find joy in. And, and then from there, then they can move to the next. So it, life is about moment to moment. And it's amazing the, the action. So this is where it's the other way around, right? We teach, we use action behavior to help people connect to insight, the cognitive piece, and then the affective piece, the feeling, right? So first, you do what you do. You do what you do for yourself. You love what you do for yourself. And then you have the insight. It's okay. I will continue to do what I do for myself. And then over time, it's like, oh, I still get up in the morning if I feel angry or sad. But I'm doing the same thing I'm doing. I have my coffee. It's like the ultimate grounding mechanism. Mm -hmm. It's a one thing or two things that they do every day. What is it that you do? And then what is it that you do that gives you joy? Or at least you feel like you're doing something for yourself. 
And then, of course, we expand it to exercise, self-care. So then we introduce the concept of self-care, right? But a lot of times, sometimes we can't introduce self-care too early. They don't call it self-care. When, when I, if somebody is really suffering and I say, let's start with your self-care, what do you do for self-care? They're like, nothing. Um, so it's, it's too early. So, so this ties into, again, I, I think I'm still talking like a therapist, right? But it sort of ties into your quote of really to teach people to remember that it's just a day to, it's just, you do this now. <laughs> and what do you do the next thing? And then what do you do in the next moment? And okay, you've gone through your day. And are you okay now, today? You didn't think you can get through today, but you did. But it is about slogging through one day at a time, slogging through one task at a time of life. And again, that's what being alive is. Back to your, it's that walking meditation, but it's also, and it's every breath. And that's how we slog through life. So there's so many metaphors that we therapists use, right? <laughs> And whatever works for yeah. our clients. Yeah, I mean, I feel like life is just full of metaphors. Um, but what you just said in terms of life is moment by moment reminds me another quote. I, I forgot, it's some, I think it's a Buddhist philosophy, but it talks about enlightenment is a space between your thoughts. And kind of reminds me of that, right? Because at least for me, as someone who's very cognitive, very heady, I tend to overcomplicate things by overthinking. And of course, I've cultivated meditations, mindfulness practices that helps me calm the brain chatter that I grapple with every single day. Uh, I want to zoom in and focus and highlight something that you said in terms of the client that you worked with or who's dealing with the grief of her mother. You talked about the one greatest anchor and grounding mechanism that she was able to do is almost like finding the familiar finding the familiar within this new world of chaos and uncertainty, dealing with the loss of a mother, but because she was able to cling on to the familiar task of making coffee, she was able to be more grounded than before that, I guess, technique or uh, recommendation by you. Like pattern recognition is very helpful because it's a sure way, air quote, to find the certainty amongst the uncertainties which isn't always helpful, right? But I think in this sense, if you teach someone to self-care right away or start all these things, very big and grandiose things, they might get overwhelmed. They're like, oh, well, that's way too much. But if you tell them, hey, find something that's healthy and sustainable for you, do that one thing that you used to do that doesn't require a lot of energy expenditure. It's like, oh, this is very doable. And then as you said, you start introducing incrementally something that's higher and higher and higher um so i just want to highlight it because i think it's really really important especially the world is burning down as we speak the american political landscape is beyond screwed and there's always horrible things and atrocities left and right and i think it's very overwhelming like the totality of that but as you said dr huang if we can find the familiar stay grounded in moments at a time I think it's a lot more manageable to a lot of people. And even doing laundry, yeah. you know, something like, oh God, I hate doing laundry. I don't like doing laundry. But then doing the laundry reminds me that I can do the, I still have laundry, that I have laundry to do, that I have clean clothes. So sometimes it's the basics. Absolutely. It, it's 
it's the small things that sort of just jolts us back to reality of here I am and I'm still able to do this. Yeah. And, and that, yeah, the world can fall apart, but this little cocoon, this little space that I have. And again, if you think about how people create space and comfort and, and their space, despite like people who live in tents, right? It's like, okay, there's nothing out, nothing out there, but I, I have my little comfort zone. And this is what I need for my comfort zone to cope with the bad world out there and the danger. And that's why kids love to create forts, right? Little zone of certainty, if you will, emotional certainty. So even politically, we feel very scared politically right now of all of these factors outside, but we each hold on to certain candidates or certain politicians or certain policy that we kind of feel like, okay, you know, um, like I still hold on to things like, oh, we're still doing electric vehicle. Okay, that's good. That's one step better than other steps backwards. So it's whatever people need to anchor, I think, if you will, right? I think we all need an anchor. And I think we forget to help people find that anchor for themselves and um, a safe anchor, if you will, not, not a bad, you know, anchor but a healthy, safe anchor. And that's a, that's a, the grounding. And then they can expand. Then they can actually begin to swim a little bit more because they're safer. Yeah, one, to stay on the train of anchors, mm-hmm. right? And I guess allowing people to whether feel or to do what else. We've been talking about emotional and grounding anchors, right? To help us grapple with the complexity of emotions and just life and how chaotic or uncontrollable life can be. I know one of the things you're best at as a professional like psychotherapist and as a professor is you either allow your patients and clients to navigate whatever they have to navigate through, but you're also very good at either teaching or instilling students or your patients and clients to find their own path, right? Whether it's finding their own path out of their emotional states or finding their path out of their life stage if they don't want to be in it anymore, like this ability to instill change. Uh, but it's more of an empowerment sense. That you're empowering them to make the change, not making the change for them, because that's not what we do. Uh, can you tell us more about that in terms of what does that entail and how do you facilitate such a process so that you're not stealing their breakthrough? You're still allowing them to go through the breakthrough themselves. How do you? empower people to find their own path? I think it's probably one of the biggest learning edge for me. I call it learning edge. We all have learning edge where, you know, different places where we we need to learn the new thing. That's an ongoing learning edge for me. Years ago, somebody said to me, okay, so you worked really well with people. So what do you think is one of the most common What's your one skill or one your your common element? Remember, we learned about common elements in school. What's your com- What's your one skill that you think is is that you use? And and I pause and I thought, you know, I think the best thing that I've learned is to be with someone, and being with someone is an ongoing learning process for me. How can I be with you and truly be with you, Benoit, this morning? where you are this moment in your life 
and really being without judgment and being in terms of like really listening to you and also really tuning into your needs and your comfort. And then that another level, which is like, like, okay, you can give me all your values and perspectives, but can I truly see the person underneath? Like on the surface, I think you're amazing. Oh my goodness, you're doing so many wonderful things and this podcast idea is great. So, but you see how it's still so peripheral and it's so judgmental still. It's still based on your accomplishment and achievement. So for me, true empowerment, and I think really good people like Gandhi and, you know, like who really know how to just be very humble and be and sit with someone and let the real Benoit comes through in whatever way you want to come through, whether it's non-verbally or verbally, so that, that your real person comes through. And for me, when that happens, then you will find your path because you feel validated and you feel accepted. But it takes a whole lot of being with you that for you to really truly feel that. With, you know, with that, with all the peripheral stuff. The, so sometimes verbal conversation takes away from being with someone. So I think sometimes it's really important to be quiet and silent with someone. So pauses, I think, is really good. I think I really like just pauses. Um, yeah, so I think empowerment, true empowerment is to really recognizing the person underneath without the accomplishments, without all of the to-dos. Um, and that goes with clients as well. So so that folks truly feel like, hey, I don't have a house and I have mental illness or I have been using for a long time and I'm not making sense with you, but it's okay. You're okay with that. That's really a gift to give to each other. It's like the unmasking of whatever facades or accolades or achievements uh, but truly seeing them for who they are on the essence of their humanity, right? Seeing that beneath, underneath them, as you talked about. And I feel like that's so rare nowadays is we all, especially in this glamorized world where we glorify and put achievements and your social following, your stature, how many followers you have, how many likes you get on a pedestal, on a societal level, where everyone learns how to put on a certain mask to navigate different containers of spaces. But through that, and it's, a lot of that is necessity, right? If you're in entertainment business, if you're a content creator like myself, you have to adhere to certain algorithms or you have to adhere to certain blueprints. As a byproduct of that, I think a lot of who we are as the essence of who we are get lost in the transaction. And it's not intentionally, but it's just like the part of the game, right? Part of this manufacturer created paradigm or the society that people like to focus on the shining squirrels to the shiny examples yeah i think i think we lose out on the authenticity and i think like you say and and more with the the concept of metaverse so more and more we're shifting our young generation into the metaverse con, con, um re, realm if you will right it's moving mm -hmm. away from the here and now you and i to uh, the presentation in the metaverse in on the Facebook page, the the touch up 
um, presentation of ourselves. So I think there's a little bit of losing of that authenticity. But but I also just want to throw in like, I love humor, like the use of humor, and and the way if we could use just the present moment to have a joke or a laugh about something, that is a way to connect authentically with each other. You know. It's like, hey, your hairdo, something about your hairdo or my hairdo, something that's very real, that's very here and now. And then it's, if it's funny, you know, we can crack a joke about that. And then, and suddenly it's like, yeah, I see you and you and I. And so I think humor is really important in being authentic and being able to laugh together or to find that common humanity um, in a very comfortable way. I, I definitely agree. Um, and I do have another very loaded and very wide question for you. So please take it as how you want, how you want, Dr. Huang. I think because of like every human has a tendency to conform to a larger thing, to feel belonged, to feel validated, recognized, and seen, even if that being seen might be on a superficial level. But the intention is I want to be part of something large. So what would you say to people that may be listening, that might be grappling or struggling with finding validations internally versus attaching too much of their worth into external validations because that's what society at large rewards people to do nowadays. I love this one that someone said about therapy, but I think it really fits. So you are showing up every day for yourself. That's what I want to say. You're here. You're waking up every day. You're getting up and doing whatever it is that you do to be in this moment right now. So that's your effort that no one takes away from. Doesn't matter what the situation you're in or how stuck you feel. You're here. You made it to this point. And you'll make it through the next moment and the next day and tomorrow and who knows how many more lives of your life. But it's really most important to recognize that you got to this point because I know lots of folks, students, family members, or others, right, who have experienced abuse, who have experienced horrendous trauma, the refugee experience, but we're still here. And like veterans, my veteran clients, it's like, listen, you survived so much to get here to this moment. So whatever it took that you did, to get here, that's your resilience. That's your resource. And don't sell that short. So what's important is let's unpack that. <laughs> what does that resilience look like up to now? Because the surviving up to this point is your toolkit. You have it. We just have to unpack it and say, which is healthy and which is not unhealthy. <laughs> what should you do more and what should you do less? But it's all there. It's nothing new that I'm giving. I'm just sort of sorting it. Think of me like Marie Kondo. <laughs> I'm sorting it out with you. <laughs> and you're purging the stuff that's no good. Like, okay, if you drink five, five glasses of beer a day, well, let's kind of purge some of that. Uh, let's keep the stuff that you've done that's good. Because you've done some good stuff up to now, right? Despite the odds. Despite the challenges. And really obstacles that went into your path and listen if your life had more difficulties than what i've had 
then you've got more tools even. It's really hard to fathom that, wait a minute, what do you mean? Like my life was really hard. And it's hard to for people to fathom that it can get better. If it's been so hard, then yes, it will have to get better than what you've been through. Yeah, I think I want to highlight that and then put that on a very large messaging board because I think for people who are going through this all-consuming, this entirety of darkness, because I've, I've been through major depression myself. I've been to a lot of low and dark seasonality of life, but it's a season, right? After the rain comes a light. And maybe for some, that light may not come for a while and may stay cloudy and may stay dark for a while, depending on your circumstances. At the same time, I do think that life at large is a season. It's very cyclical. It's nonlinear. So just because you are in a season of darkness and clouds and rain, that does not necessarily mean that your next seasons will also be dark. Life is a season, and I think that's what you're alluding to, Dr. Hong. I want to take a semi-hard pivot into back to your personal life for a bit, um, because you talked about surviving the moments. You talked about every individual, no matter on the scale and the spectrums of privileges or, uh, or oppression, even the most privileged person from the outside, they go through a lot of hardships and a lot of barriers and a lot of challenges. The idea that rich or famous people don't have issues is it's laughable. They go through their own lanes of reality and hardships. So speaking of surviving experience, you yourself went through a lot of survival experience as we started this episode, right? Going to refugee experience, being stuck on a boat with endless sea, right? There's no end in sight. But then after that, you also went through a very difficult refugee camp experience. How are you able to find hope and humanity in your own experience? Because you've gone through something very difficult as well. Okay. So the one good thing about aging is that some of these <laughs> <laughs> early childhood experiences, if I survive it, right, um, is sort of receiving in terms of the power and the impact. And again, this is years of trauma, of, of, of therapy and, you know, right? a lot of resource and support from loved ones. Um, so remember that, that where I am at now and my memory or recollection of the trauma or the difficulty and challenges are always shaped by how much resources I've had since. Because at the moment, it was very difficult. Um, but now, because I processed it with a therapist, I've kind of found what I call the time capsule. So the way one of the concepts that one of my clients love is the concept of the time capsule. I kind of have time capsule for different experiences in my life, right? And say, okay, I process it. Here's where I want to put it. So that's one of the, I guess, um, tool that I use if you ask about strategies, right? Is like I said, Name the experience, name the impact. How does it affect me? And then what do I do with it? Sometimes if it's in the past, I put it in the time capsule. So I find, I find that if I put it into context, again, it's, it's when we, when we process uh, negative experiences, we put it in context and say, okay, when I was eight, uh, there was a major upheaval in my family and, um, my mother was taken from us and 
we, I felt <laughs> kind of headless, if you will, right? Um, because my father was in the army, so he was always stationed. My father was constantly in battle, one, one battle, because this is 19, early 70s, late 60s to early 70s in Vietnam. So there's, so within that context, it was scary and difficult and, and fearful and frightening. Um, and then now as I process it, it's like, who were there for me? How did I deal with that? And yes, it was traumatic. But we survived it as a family. She was returned back to us after. I'm going to tell this story. Um, and some of my siblings may go, what? Why did you say that? <laughs> but we, <laughs> we didn't have money, right? So we shop at thrift shop. So I found this wonderful pair. So, so warm. Because for us, even in October, it was cold. Because we came from the tropics, right? So in California, it was cold. So we bought a pair of slippers. That I thought, oh, it's so wonderful. It's so fuzzy and warm inside, right? And it's kind of regular shoes outside, like. So I was so happy. They were like 50 cents, maybe. And I wore them to school. And I was so happy because they are so nice and warm. And all day long, kids start kind of pointing at me, kind of looking at my shoes and laughing or smiling and talking. And I had no idea why people were reacting a certain way. And it wasn't until like lunch or something. And one of the nicer kids said, they're talking because you're wearing slippers to school. And I'm like, I didn't even understand slippers, right? And then they had to gesture and say, no, it's for sleeping in the house. And yeah, of course, I'm not going to wear those again the next day, <laughs> despite they're the best shoes. Um, it's sort of these moments where we, we frame it and we say, okay, that was rough. That was okay. And what did we learn from it? And again, it's the reflection that we talked about early on helping to have the reflection, the frame it as a learning experience, moving from that, and then later on helping other refugees to say, hey, if this happens, or you may be experiencing some of this, and this is how you cope, this is how it would be helpful. Because we can't prevent stuff from happening in our lives, right? But we, we can get through this, get through it one day at a time, one step at a time. And then the conflict, whether it's resolved or not resolved. So what happens is when we have conflict, we have relationship conflict, we tend to think it will never be resolved. This is it. It's broken our relationship forever. Um, we get into that mode. And that's the pattern that you talk about, right? We often have patterns, patterns of relationship, patterns of conflict, and then also patterns of thought. That makes us think that this is never going to be repaired. Um, but we just have to trust ourselves and trust the world, not just the person or the relationship, just that I'm still going to be in the world. The conflict may or may not resolve itself. I'm still going to get up. I got it. I'm going to get over my COVID. And then we see what we see. It's the uncertainty. The fear is what really what trips people up so we have to recognize that fear when we teach people to breathe through it because it's really coping with that overwhelming fear i do want to zoom in and highlight something that's really important is it's it's a little bit related to cbt cognitive behavior therapy concept but it's the concept that we're not our thoughts and our thoughts aren't us and i think it reminds me of another conversation we had offline months ago where we talked about 
people view memory as end-all be-all. That, oh, if I have a certain memory, then that must be 100% what happens. It's like, no, memory is not stored. Memory is not recalled. Memory is reconstructed. Like neurologically, memory is not stored. We reconstruct whatever memory we recall based on different triggers and stimuli. What that means is reconstruction leaves room for error. So sometimes our memories deceive us. That's why there's false witness testimonies. Do you have any thoughts on that in terms of like why we shouldn't attach too much end-all be-all significance onto our memories or our thoughts? So I want to steal the concept from um, uh, this Vietnamese-American poet, Ocean Vuong. So in an interview, they ask about his writing about his family. And he said, well, I use my family members like holograms. And I really love that concept. Um, for the Trekkies, it's very familiar, right? And I used it with a client who lost his mom recently, and he loved it because he was questioning himself. He says, is it unjue? Is it weird that I think I hear my mom, right? And when I say hologram, he goes, I love it. And so it's okay. It's okay for me to, to hear my mom. But it really ties in what you're descri describing, right? Because we conjure up the hologram. We conjure up anything in our memory or the person, the event, whatever it is. And we embellish it. We give it life based on our current moment and what we need right now and then some of the and we reconstruct with some of the pieces and fragments that our brain we pulled out from the bank so in that sense it is it is your reconstruction and it is your reconstruction based on whatever you need it to be today so whether it's negative or positive traumatic or po or good it is what, what your brain or you emotionally is needing it to be. We don't judge it in that sense. It's like, okay, so it's a hologram. And then it also sort of sometimes have a life of its own. It, that's why I like it because it's also like it may start to shift and move and to make decisions in the, in the here and now, in, the, in today. That wasn't the same as before. It's like a whole new story by itself. And in narrative therapy, right, that's the whole idea. And postmodern constructionism, we, we love it for that reason. It's like truth, whose truth? Your view or my view? And we both experienced the same family event. We, we were both in the, same, in the same boat, right, when we were growing up together. Um, so for example, recently it was really interesting. I had a discussion with my sisters and they just looked at me like, what? You think that? Because we were talking about one event and the way I described it, they said it was negative and they didn't experience it as negative at all. And again, it's that concept of I reconstructed it based on my experience and the, the feeling, the impact on me at the moment. And they reconstructed it raise on their view. So in narrative therapy, we're about teaching people it's all stories. It's these stories that we tell ourselves about our past. It's stories we tell ourselves about the future. And that's why we have these catastrophic thought. Because we have the catastrophic thought because we anticipate the future to be negative. It's these moments we jump ahead. 
And then also the hologram is the stuff we we pulled up from the from the past, and then we kind of make it into this current story that we're saying to ourselves. So I think it's a really helpful concept that I'm going to use. And then also tying into your discussion of our thoughts are not ourselves. A really good way that um, I think I use this in class too. I say, okay, so you're sitting here and in my my meditation practice, we call it the monkey thoughts, right? Because it, your thoughts jump around a lot. But a, a really good way for people to let go of the thoughts is like, okay, you're sitting here, you're going, I have to go to the bathroom. I'm hungry. Uh, I wonder when we're going to start having lunch. I'm sitting here going, I wonder what we're going to have for lunch. I wonder if the dog is going to start whining again. You see how it's so constant. And who cares about those thoughts? Do you really care? Are you attached to those? And so people tend to really like that going, well, yeah, true. <laughs> so like if they can let go of some of these more mundane thoughts, then they can begin to say, oh, I guess I don't have to get attached to these thoughts about myself either. Because it is, we have these negative thoughts about ourselves, about our identity. I'm so stupid. I'm no good. I'm never going to be as good as my mom. I'm never going to be good as good as my family. These notions we have, right? Again, it's always starting with the mundane, the stuff that people are familiar with. Teach them to let that go. Yeah. I feel like surrendering and detachment and the impermanence of thoughts and giving, I guess, giving control over our desire to have everything planned out, right? That's really hard nowadays. Because like I said, the world is gradually more filled with uncertainties, filled with fear. Mainstream media doesn't help with that either. So I feel like it's human nature for a lot of us to focus like a focal point, get hyper fixated on that focal point and just like, oh, I need to control this domain. Because if I can't, that really means I'm worthless or the world is screwed or whatever, right? But I think in that fixation, we tend to miss out on a lot of other things. Because I think it's like equilibrium. It's hard to explain, but by opening up, by letting go, you're actually allowing more good things to happen. And it's it's not always linear. It's not always guaranteed. But how can you introduce new things into your life when you don't create space? And I think space is only created when you let go. But that's really hard. So uh, what would you say on that note? Because surrender is a big topic and a shining theme throughout these conversations. Uh, what are some high-level things that people can do to start on a simple level, as you said, eventually get to where they want to be? I like your concept of making room. You can't get a new sofa if you, can get, can't, if you haven't gotten rid of your old sofa. So first and foremost, to decide what to, what to get rid of. And if it's negative ideas, negative self-concept, negative thoughts, that I don't want. Because part of the reason that it's so hard for change, for people to move to positive change, is they're not sure what they want to, they really aren't sure what they don't, what they don't want. And therefore, you know, when people, when people can be, can say to you, I want a new job, I want a new blah, 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 right? But they can't tell you, I don't want this or this. And it comes back to, attachment. Even though something is negative, I'm holding on to it. I hate my job, but I'm holding on to my job. Well, first make a list of what it is that you'd like to let go. 
So oftentimes I ask people to make lists too, especially if it's about concepts, ideas, self-concept, or jobs, or whatever some relationships. So we ask people to to make a list of what's good and what I don't like. What do I like and what what I don't like about the situation, the job, the the relationship, the person in their life, right?、Um, Because it helps people to begin to decide what to purge. Again, it's about what to let go of. Then, for me, it's always about naming. Just name it. So when we say name it, then we have less judgment. If we just name what it is that we don't want, then we're not. At, we haven't gotten to feelings, and we don't get very complicated. So making lists is naming, right? Just naming these things. No judgment. Yet, once it's listed a name, then we can begin to say no judgment. Just how much do I really like it or not like it? And so numbers is quite easy for people. Gauging, scaling from one to ten, people can easily give a number for us, and it, and they can do it quite fast, right?、Uh, before they sanction and hold off to themselves. And then they can always change a number, and again, it's changing of the week. So week by week, people may say, "Last week I wanted to get rid of that sofa. I was at level seven, but this week, actually looking at it, I'm now moving to four." In which case, we say that's okay, and this is why we take time to decide anything we want to get rid of. I think I'm very suspect when someone say, "I'm just I did it. I got rid of." You know my relationship. I want to make a decision like that because any decision making is very difficult because it's always attack. There's always attachment to one side or the other. So if it's a message to give to listeners, then time. I think give yourself time. It's okay to take time because then the decision is more thought thoughtful, and decision is more likely to be. Responding to really what you want. If I quit smoking, okay, then what would I do with those smoke breaks? What do I do with my hands? What do I do with whatever, whatever?、Um, so really sit with that emptiness where that other thing used to be. We replace something in our life with something else. It's very rare. That someone、yeah. completely purge everything in their house and not bring new things in, <laughs> like you say. Same thing with experiences. Same thing with self concept. We replace a notion about ourselves with something else. The power, the empowerment piece is we get to decide what goes there. It's a conscious decision. It's not a habit,、um, or it's a new habit, but at least it's a habit you choose. And then again, if you replace something negative with something healthy. Like if you replace replace smoking with、uh, exercise, then great. That's a service for your body. But sometimes you replace smoking with candy. Yeah, this is such an important thing because I know you talked about the notion of naming something, like naming the experience throughout. And this is also a full circle where we started the episode with self compassion, self grace. Into as you said, you talked about Dr. Huang. If someone listening is struggling with Attaching too much emphasis on their thoughts or their emotions of the time of the moment, then give yourself some grace. Give yourself some time to heal through that process, since everyone does have different timeline. 
But it's also like the idea that if you don't know what it is that you want to get rid of, how can you get rid of that? Vice versa, if you don't know what it is that you want, how can you strive to get that? And I think the first step of that process is naming it. So it has an identity, has a label of its own, but without attaching too much, once again, attachment to the label, but just rather name it, highlight it, make note of it, and then you can work through that. Whatever label and self-judgment I have or whatever other people call me at this moment, I have the power to replace that label with something else. I have the power to literally replace that either cognitively or emotionally into a better thing that's more serving. And even going from smoking to candy, you're like picking the, the devil, right? Picking what's worse, similar to how we choose our president nowadays, picking the least uh, shitty option, excuse my French. Uh, but at the same time, there's still power there is I'm making the decision to choose candy over smoke rather than reacting to my smoking habits that I thought, oh, I could never quit smoking because it's too addicting. It's like, no, you can always make a decision. No matter the circumstances, no matter your position in life, you always have a say in a decision that you make. So I just want to highlight that because I think that's so important. And a lot of people forget how much power they truly have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think that stage of change gives us that. If we introduce a stage of change to people, that's also empowering in that sense, right? Is to say, okay, well, I'm in pre-contemplation. <laughs> I'm not there. I don't want to change. But at least I am making a choice of not wanting to change. So that in itself is choice. So instead of saying I'm addicted and I have no power, we're essentially saying, no, you are addicted and you do have the power. You are making a choice saying today, not today, today you are not making that change. And that's okay because that's your life and that is your use. We're always making decisions. And people forget yeah. that every moment is about a decision. So, you know, I introduce a concept of decision tree to, you know, somebody with a lot of anxiety, right? And I'm like, you are constantly making a decision of to call, make the phone call or not make the phone call. To, you know, go out or not to go out this morning. And it is your choice. And it's okay. If you choose not to go out, that's a, so, you know, we go, okay, go out or not go out. Say no. Then what happens next? And then just one thing leads to another. And then if you say yes, then you do the next thing. And so when we break it down to small decisions, we call it compartmentalizing. And it's so much more doable. And it's less daunting. And it's less scary. And along the way, change isn't always big. If today, all it takes is, yes, I go out, but no, I talk to no one. Okay. Is that doable for today? Yeah, that's doable for today. Then that's what you do today. So it's back to that self-compassion, right? It's like, this is how much I want to change today. But one of the things in, I always say to people is, listen, you're changing regardless of what you do or not do with me. Therapy or no therapy, you're still changing anyway. But with me, you decide how you want to change. Because if you don't talk about it, you're still moving through your day and you're still changing, but you're changing for the worse, for example. 
right? So if you continue to smoke or use or whatever, you're still changing. You're just one more step in your kidney or your liver or or your lungs. Yeah, it's, you never wake up one day and smoke a two entire packs. Right? I feel like good or bad habits, it always compounds over time. And once again, I think people like the quote, life is comprised of what repeats, like truly in every level. So, and on, I want to highlight something. So in the book that I alluded to earlier, The Road Less Traveled by the psychiatrist, he talks about entering psychotherapy or seeking therapy is one of the greatest signs of courage because you are opening up your secrets, your insecurities, your fear, your trauma, your pain to a complete stranger, sure, with a professional clinical training. And a lot of people would say, oh, I didn't have a good therapy session today or oh, I went to one session, I didn't like the therapist, and that was it. I think those individuals may view that as a failure, but I think we need to remind them again that, hey, even you seeking out therapy the first place or picking up a phone to call a clinic or doing your Google search or asking someone like, hey, I'm thinking about therapy. What does it feel like, especially for men? That is a sign of courage. And you can compound that and lean onto that momentum. But just because something didn't work out, that doesn't mean you failed. You still took a giant leap unknowing to yourself. But that is extremely courageous. And I just want to put that on a pedestal because I think people only view successful therapy outcome if they've been going there for X amount of years. It's like, no, even if you go to one session, you terminate it, you had a bad experience. And you may not see one again, or you may, but that itself by itself is very, very courageous. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Just, I think it's that, again, back to the stages, right? It's like by making the phone call or considering making the phone call, the person is saying, wait a minute, maybe this situation isn't so good. Maybe we, I need to change something about my situation. So already there's insight, already there's recognition of what's, what I don't want or what I, I want or what I don't like right now in my situation. So now the next step is somebody who I'm going to call is going to help me figure that out. So, so already there's insight about something that needs to be changed. And then if they do see somebody for that one session, even if they don't come back, Hopefully somewhere in that session, the person says to the therapist, good or bad, right? This is how I feel. And this is what I don't want to verbalize, to articulate it. So it's out there. Again, it's already on the table. It's in basket. Now they can take the basket home and just put it in a corner somewhere. But hopefully, even if it didn't work out with the therapy, who knows? Six months from now, they may pull that basket back out and say, well, yeah, I remember I didn't like my situation and I kind of talked about that. Maybe I want to look at it again. So absolutely, even if the one session, it's already on the table. And hopefully somewhere along the line, the individual may pull that back out and say, yeah, maybe I'll look at it again and I'll throw some stuff out so that I could make room for a little bit more self-love a little bit more self-acceptance. So ultimately, back to living alive, being alive, right? It's about how each of us make the most of our being alive. 
So, however way the individual wants to do it, that makes them feel that their life is a little bit more palatable or a little bit more quality. That's what we strive for, because we all know that human suffering is universal. So many philosophers, of course, the the Eastern Buddhist philosophy is about life is suffering. It's a given. It's just different flavors, different pictures of what suffering look like for individuals. So our work is recognizing my suffering and your suffering together. And how do you want your suffering to shift? Or how do you sit with your suffering? And some of us have a little bit less in some parts of our of our time, um, and others have more at different times. But just like you say, it's seasonal. So the f- suffering will ebb and flow because I may be in a good place right now, but I will be losing some loved ones, and then I'll be suffering again. And death is our ultimate suffering. The fear of that and the impending of the, the impending nature of death causes a lot of anxiety for a lot of people. That in itself is suffering. How we cope with death, which is coming for all of us. So um, in that sense, it really makes it very universal. I feel like that's a giant truth that it's so plain and obvious. I think it's hidden in plain sight. What I mean by that is, I think if all of us first grapple and accept a fact, the fact that life is suffering, if we, that's our operational point. If we start from there and you're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense why this happened to me because life is supposed to be filled with suffering. And it's not in a nihilistic, hopeless, like, oh no, life sucks way, but it's more like, okay, I know that life is gonna have sucky moments and suffering, and then I can do something about that. That's where I think reality and life becomes interesting. But we must first accept that life is filled with suffering. No one ever promised us that the moment you're born, it's peaches and rainbows and sunshine. Like famous Nietzschean philosophy, I talked about this in my last interview, but where when he declared God is dead, it was like the rise of nihilism or hopelessness. And he talked about when you're born into this life, you sign a contract with life. And there's only two clauses on that contract is A, life is filled with suffering and B, you're going to die. Those are the two only certainties in a life of uncertainty. So I think once we accept that, you're like, okay, life is never supposed to be perfect. And through that, I think we can make life and reality into what fits, what serves us and what not. But that's definitely a different topic. But I just want to highlight that because I do think that a lot of us forget in our day-to-day that, oh yeah, why is this happening to me? It must be me. I suck as a person. God hates me. It's like, no, life is supposed to have shitty moments and suffering. That, that's what life is. But we can do something about it always. Um, and I feel like that's definitely a mic drop moment from you. And once it's a full circle, right? A lot of the underlying themes of our conversation is here is life, but here's what we can do about life through compassion, through forgiveness, through grace, um, through self-compassion, most importantly. So as we are approaching the end of the interview, Dr. Huang, 
I want to hit you with the signature discover more podcast questions. Uh, as you may know, it's twofold. So the first one is, what is a area or topic or domain in your life you want to discover more about, be more curious about after this insightful conversation with you? And the second thing is, what would you like to encourage and challenge our listeners who are beholders of curiosity to discover more something about after listening to this very important topic that we discussed? Yeah, I'm a very, I'm at a very good junction, I think, in my life, and I feel very privileged and blessed. Is that um, I, I'm making this career change, but also I have support of family, like my spouse, my children, my brothers and sisters, and I have great resources and support. So I feel very blessed, and my learning edge now is to really just. To learn to be with people more, in a more humble and accepting way, to just really learn to be, and I find that it's so freeing to just kind of relax into the moment and be with someone, and just to be here in this moment, whether we're here with the trees and the birds, or we're here at. In the office, in a meeting room, even that, I I'm trying to figure out how to sort of be in that moment, and and have that connection, um, and and the human connection because I feel like now I have the luxury, um, of just to to begin to see people for who they are. So in that sense, I, I think that's my learning edge is to really learn to. Relax into people, into it with people, and I think it would be really, um, I think it would be very good for me as a person, as a human being. Um, and then for listeners, I'm back to more self compassion for each person. So if I could wish anything for each person, I wish each of uh, each of you. To have a bit more self-compassion for you, for yourself, and I want to share with you the this lovely poem that um, from Rumi uh, called the Guest House. The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome. And entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them all at the door, laughing, and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent. As a guide from beyond, this is from Ruby. I just think it's so lovely to really help us and guide us in all of the stuff we talked about today. Is to have the moment and know that each your individual experience, because no one, no one feels the way you do. Whatever it is that you feel, and it's your house. Yeah, I I love Rumi, the Persian mystic poet, right? 
um, there's another uh, my favorite poem of his is a lot shorter. It's uh, along the line of uh, there is a space outside of wrongdoing and right doing, and I'll meet you there. And I feel like that's very thematic with what we talked about: compassion for others, compassion for ourselves. And hopefully, with that Rumi's poem and with your poem of treat everyone like a guest, right? Treat everyone through love. We can collectively, as a society, move past this contentious point of conflict and resentment and judgment and hatred and fear and truly find that common ground in between right doing and wrongdoing just meet each other as humans and a guest of house and guest of honor but yeah this is an amazing i know before the podcast you're like oh i don't know what i'm going to talk about for two hours but this is such an uh, insightful and such a calming and soothing conversation for me and yeah, this reminds me once again of why you're such a great professor. And I really learned a lot from you last semester, which is why I wanted to have you on the show to translate some of that experience for free for the listeners without having 100,000 plus student debt because uh, US is very, very expensive. But as we're definitely coming to an end, uh, Dr. Huang, do you have any parting message, uh, parting words uh, for the listeners to think more about as they? navigate their life through a moment and moment and moment at a time um thank you so much Vinoy, for just kind of having this discussion with me in this moment right this sharing because i learned as well so much from your perspective and also sort of opening up new thoughts van venue avenues um parting thought well we like you say, we're here and we're here until we die, right? Until we leave. So um, it's about slogging through, breathe through your sorrows and your pains up to now. You're going to continue to move through the next challenges. I learned a lot from this episode and I have no question that listeners will take away what they may, but I think that a very big emphasis and shining topic of this conversation is, you know, be less judgmental of ourselves and others because we don't know what we don't know. And we're all just 8 billion individual floating stardust with different genetics, different backgrounds, different experiences, all trying to navigate what this, this mysterious unknown thing called life that's full of suffering, but also full of joy and bliss and opportunities. Um, but yeah, too, as always, I will link all the resources everything we talked about in the show notes below. I will link Dr. Huang's email for anyone who would love to connect with her, ask her more questions, maybe to um, just to connect further and debrief for whatever you took away. And as always, um, if you can share this, subscribe to the YouTube channel. By the time this episode goes live, it will be already available on YouTube. If you can subscribe, like and share this with another person, it really helps out the channel a lot. Uh, with no monetization to the listeners to add a little more of a value to this life that's filled with uncertainties and hardships. And as always, I really thank you for joining on this week's Discover More Train with us. And as always, hope to see you again next time. Thank you. Thank you.